Erev Tov, my friends, welcome to another edition of our Monday night Shi'ur. It's been a little bit of time since we've gotten together. Baruch Hashem, we've all had a wonderful holiday of Pesach, celebrating with our family and our friends in whichever way it was meant to be. And we are back, studying with you here live on Isru Chag, the day after the holiday, the day of Mimuna. For all, all Moroccan listeners who uh, extended the celebrations of the holiday one more day, uh, we hope we you enjoyed the spirituality uh, that the Chag had to offer. But now we are back studying Torah once again to those listening online or uh, recorded on the podcast. Baruch Haba. It's good to know that you're listening. And uh, we're going to get right back into it. Normally, Monday night are, is reserved for Mishle over the last few months. Uh, however, given that we are post-Pesach, post-Pesach is usually reserved for a special time of Perkei Avot, the study of Perkei Avot between the six weeks between Pesach and Shavuot in our attempt to better ourselves in our Midot in preparation for Matan Torah. We started this last year. I don't believe uh, the... The recordings are on the podcast. I will see if I can get those posted. However, nevertheless, it's a perfect opportunity to study the amazing discussions and works of our Chachamim in the time of Perkei Avot, in the time of the Mishnah. As we know, this Sefer of Mishnayot, this Masechet, is studied by thousands upon thousands of people in an attempt to improve themselves, to improve their character traits, their Midot, their way of life, and that is our goal. So I invite you this evening to study with me at least one Mishnah of the first chapter of Masechet Avot, a Mishnah that I'm going to go out on a limb and say is definitely not one of the more popular ones in the opening parak. The opening parak is filled with some wonderful ideas, very, very famous dictums by our Chachamim. But I want to focus on one today that uh, seems to tends to be overlooked simply because the subject matter is one that is unfamiliar with uh, with the average person. It's territory that is not trespassed upon often. So we are studying today Mishnah Chet in the first chapter of Perkei Avot. For those of you that are following inside and have a Mishnah with them, so it's Perk Aleph Mishnah Chet. But if you don't have one with you, don't worry. I will read it right now. The Mishnah says the following, Yehuda ben Tabai veshimon ben Shatach kibelumehem. Yehuda ben Tabai and Shimon ben Shetach, who were two of the great Tanaim in the time of the Mishnah, the two, one of the two pairs, the two Zugot, they received the tradition from the pairs before them, who were um, Yehoshua ben Perachia and Itai Ha'arbeli. We're not going to get into that, but nevertheless, they received the tradition. Of course, it started from Moshe and Misinai and went all the way down to them and further. And this is what they had to say. Yehuda ben Tabai Omer. Yehuda ben Tabai says, Al ta'as atzmecha ke'orchei hadayanin. When you're serving as a judge, do not act as a lawyer. Okay, interesting. We know that there's a judge. We know that there's also lawyers that um, that are either prosecutors or act in defense. 
for the defendant. But when you're acting as a judge, do not act as a lawyer. And when the litigants stand before you, you should consider both of them as guilty. We're going to focus on this word at the end of the class. But when they are dismissed from you, when the case is over, you shall consider them as innocent, provided that they have accepted the judgment. Okay. So as you can see, like I mentioned, not one of the Mishnayot that is often quoted by many people to improve our Midot, because many of us do not uh, study the field of law or um, or are very familiar with the judicial system in general. So we tend to, again, overlook this Mishnah and maybe not pay so much attention to it. But there are definitely many, many ideas that can be learned from this Mishnah in the name of Rabbi Yehuda ben Tabai and Shimon ben Shetach. This Mishnah has been variously interpreted by Chachamim, and almost all the interpretations explain and agree that the whole purpose of the Mishnah is meant to preserve the integrity of the judicial system. Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, Zecher Tzadik Libracha, he points out that if you have to focus who the two authors of this Mishnah is. Rabbi Shimon ben Shetach and Rabbi Yehuda ben Tabai. It's a very important observation because the Gemara re- relates in Masechet Makot a very incredible um, situation that took place with Yudab ben Tabai, who condemned a uh, who condemned a witness to death, even though his testimony was proven false. I read you the Gemara in Masechet Makot. The Gemara says, "Amar Rabbi Yudab ben Tabai." Again, Rabbi Yudab ben Tabai is the author of our Mishnah. He says, may I see consolation? If I did not execute a zomem witness, a zomem witness is one who testified um, against his fellow, but he was found to be lying or in a different place at the time. Um, so he goes, I, if I, may I see consolation if I did not execute this witness for testifying falsely about a capital crime? In order to counter the view of the tzidukim, shehayu omrim, the Sadducees would say, "En ha'edim zomemin nehergin nidon." They used to say that zomem witness, the punishment of a zomem witness who's found to be lying, is that he the, uh, he is meted out the, meted out the punishment that was going to give was deserved to the other person. So they testified falsely about Mayor that he killed somebody, and Mayor was going to be put to death. And they were testified falsely. So these two witnesses are now called Zomem witnesses. They are now put to death because that's what you wanted to do to Mayor. So now we're going to put you to death. So, so the fact that the Sadducees say, used to say, the Tzidukim used to say that the Zomem witnesses are not executed unless the accused has been executed. So now this is what Rabbi Yehuda ben Tabai said that even though that uh, that once he even executed a person, even though technically not all the criteria of the death sentence has been met, because he wished to refute the position of the Sadducees, it was something that was very, very important, yet controversial. At the same time, his colleague, Shimon ben Shetach, hears this, 
And he says, Amar lo Shimon ben Shetach. And I continue with the Gemara. May I see consolation if you have not shed innocent blood. He's pointing his finger at his friend and he's saying, you killed someone. You murdered someone who you shouldn't have killed. Both need to be proven guilty before you can sentence someone to death. And therefore, you took matters into your own hand just because you wanted to defend the, the law over that of the Sadducees, of the Tzidukim, but you killed someone before he was supposed to, um, and he shouldn't have died. Shimon ben Shetach, he minced no words when reprimanding his friend, whose zeal to discredit the Tzidukim led to a very, very tragic error. Yudab ben Tebai, they say, cried many, many years of his life to go and, um, uh, and, and, Ask for forgiveness for this to, to the person that he killed. We're gonna get back to this. The problem is here is Shimon ben Shetach's response. We're gonna see how this is gonna to connect to the Mishnah, because no one. It seems to be that Shimon ben Shetach is defending the the Tzidukim, the Sadducees. Yudab ben Tabai sentenced the guy to death just to defend Jewish law over that of the Sadducees and what they were trying to prove. Comes Shimon ben Shetach and says, "No, you shouldn't have done that." So why are you defending the Sadducees? No one was actually more unsympathetic to the Tzidukim, to the Sadducees, than Shimon ben Shetach. Shimon ben Shetach was actually the brother-in-law of King Yanai, Yanai Amelech, himself was a Tzidukim. He was a Sadducee. A Sadducee, for those that are unaware, are a sect of Jews that only believe in the Torah Shebikhtav. They only believe in the what's written in the Torah. But the oral tradition, the oral law, is something that they um, they dismiss. One of the prime examples that we have is that of of Sfirata uh, Omer or the Korban HaOmer. The Torah actually says Mimachorat HaShabbat that we have to give it on the day after Shabbat. Now the the Tzidukim, the Sadducees, took this literally to mean that the Korban HaOmer is always brought on a Sunday because Sunday is always the day after Shabbat, but we don't interpret it that way. We interpret Mimachorata Shabbat, Shabbat being the first day of Pesach, no matter when it falls out. So therefore, the Korban Omer is brought the day after the first day of Pesach, which is the second day of Pesach, and hence that's why we have the Sfirata Omer, which begins on the second day of Pesach, not on the Sunday uh, that, come, that comes out. So that's what the Tzidukim used to believe. They took the Torah very, very literally. When they said that the, when you put the Tfilin Ben Enecha, they used to take the Tfilin and put it between their eyes. But we know that the Tfilin has to be here on uh, above the forehead. So a lot of examples like this. So so Yehuda ben, ben Tabai wanted to disprove the Tzidukim, Chazak Baruch, but he went too far. Shimon ben Shetach was, was, seems to be defending the Tzidukim, but he's not. He's not. He's very unsympathetic to the Tzidukim. His brother-in-law was King Yanai, who was a Tziduki. Um, and the whole reason why Shimon ben Shetach, and there's countless stories in the Gemara, on why he wasn't even killed, given that he was so much against the Tzidukim, was because he was under protection of his sister. His sister was married to King, Yan, Yan, uh, uh, King Yanai. So therefore, they, didn't, they never killed Shimon ben Shetach. He was very, very vocal about his beliefs and his ideology, and he was very, very vocal against the ways of the Tzidukim, yet he never was killed. However, in spite of his fierce opposition to the Tzidukim, and how many times he protested against the king, and I've got all the rules of the Tzidukim, 
he looked at his friend, he counseled his friend that one's emotions were, got the best of you, and he cannot allow you to affect the judicial process. You were at no right to sentence that person to death just because you wanted to prove the Tzidukim wrong. There is laws involved here. And if you don't follow the laws, then you are mistaken. Now, Rabbi Shimon ben Shetach knew too well the need to protect the authority and integrity of the court. Um, I want to tell you an unbelievable story that is brought down, not in the Gemara, but is brought down by Rashi in the Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin. Also, it has to do with Shimon ben Shetach, and we'll get back to this. Um, it once happened that there was, you may have heard this story, it once happened that a certain corrupt person, his name was Baaya. He was a Jewish tax collector, but he was very corrupt. He died on the same day as a particular tzaddik. There was a tzaddik, they both died on the same day. And the two funeral processions were happening at the same time in the same cemetery. And as this was taking place, a group of bandits of Listim ambushed the processions and everybody started running away. And only one person remained behind, which was one of the students of this Chacham who was watching the, the beers of the, the coffins of, of these two individuals. Now, he wanted to protect the coffin of, of the tzaddik that passed away. Now, when everyone came back, the bandits left, and everyone came back to bury the corpses, they confused the coffin of the tzaddik with the coffin of the tax collector, the, the ba'ayah. So this student sees what's going on, and he starts making a big protest. Now, nah, what are you doing? You know, this is the wrong one. This is the tzaddik. You're taking the wrong person. And he protests, he protests, but no one was paying attention to him whatsoever. What ended up happening? This this guy, this tax collector, corrupt guy, individual, was buried with all the chachamim, tzaddikim. They were blowing shofars. They were crying at his at his uh, at his hespedim eulogies, and the chacham received a unembellished burial. You know, with all the relatives of the tax collector uh, family. And the, the student couldn't believe this was happening. So he comes back home. He doesn't know. He can't believe this is what actually took place. And uh, he's quite distraught. He said, how can it be that my, uh, my mentor was subject to such dishonor? So that night, the, uh, the Chacham appeared to his student in the dream and reassured him. And he showed him, don't worry about it. Now in Shamayim, I'm receiving tremendous kavod, and honor, and there the tax collector is being beaten up in Gainam in hell for all the troubles that he caused to the Jewish people. He's suffering for it right now. So he went on to explain why there was a mix-up. Student want to know why did they mix up the coffins? So he went to explain that he says during his lifetime, the Chacham was was saying while he was alive, he once saw a group of people speaking disparagingly, uh, speaking uh, badly about Torah scholars. And he let it fly. He didn't embarrass them. He didn't critique them. He just let them continue talking Lashon Ara about Torah scholars. And as a result of that failed protest, this was a punishment. And he had to suffer a very similar punishment. A burial suited for a person of a lowly stature. This was his punishment. 
Ah, so why did the tax collector be Zohe? Why did he merit such an amazing uh, funeral, one with full of kavod and honor? He said, because once this tax collector prepared a banquet for all the city officials, but when the officials failed to arrive for whatever reason, he took all the food that he prepared and he distributed it to the poor of the city. And as a reward for that mitzvah, he was buried with honor. So then the student says, okay, how long is this tax collector going to suffer in Gainam? How long is he going to suffer for? So you know what the sage told him? The Chacham told him, until Shimon ben Shetach dies and he'll take his place in Gainam. What? Shimon ben Shetach? Shimon ben was a great tzaddik. He's going to die. He's going to take his place of the tax collector in Gainam. He said, what did Shimon ben Shetach do to deserve such a fate? So the Chacham told him, he said, you know, you know there are Jewish sorcerers, women, um, uh, Jewish women performing sorcery in Ashkelon, and he has not brought them to justice, even though he knows they're performing sorcery. Witchcraft is against the, uh, the, against the Torah, Mechashefalotechaye. And therefore, he has no. He has to go and bring them to justice, and he's just leaving them there. Dream over. He wakes up in the morning. This student goes, "I gotta go tell Shimon ben Shetach." So he runs over to relate his dream to Shimon ben Shetach. And upon hearing the dream, Shimon ben Shetach then gathers um, uh, a group of people and he formulates a plan to deal with these sorceresses. And it was a rainy day, and Shimon ben Shetach assembled eighty men. And each one of them had a dry robe, a, uh, like a jalabia, inside, and it was covered inside a pot. They were carrying a pot with a dry robe inside. You'll see why this is important. He came to the castle where these uh, women were performing sorcery, and he left the men outside in the rain, holding the pot with a robe inside. He entered the castle. And the witches went up to him and says, Who are you? We want to know who you are. And he says, I'm a sorcerer, just like you. And uh, I want to test your powers of witchcraft. And he continued to boast how he, uh, that although it was a rainy day, nevertheless, he could cause, with a little hocus-pocus, 80 men to walk in here totally dry. One man for each sorceress. And uh, the women says, Yeah, let's see if you can do that. So... He did some signal with his hand. All of a sudden, the 80 men come in, dry, not a drop of water on them, and they couldn't believe what was going on. At that point, the men saw, they rushed in, each person grabbed one woman, lifting her off the ground, because once the women are lifted off the ground, they no longer have any power to perform the witchcraft. You can only invoke those powers when you are touching the earth. And the sorceresses were brought outside of the castle and Shimon ben Shetach executed each and every one of them. Story's not over yet. After this incident, the relatives of these sorceresses crafted a plot to avenge the deaths of, these, of their family members, these women. So two of them came before a court. This is where, where it gets important. Two of them came before a court and testified that they saw Shimon ben Shetach commit a capital offense. Sorry, the son of Shimon ben Shetach. We saw him murder someone. Total lie. 
And the court questioned the witnesses and they accepted the testimony and they sentenced to death the son of Shimon ben Shetach. It was announced he was taken out to be executed. And on the way out, he was asked to confess his sin, whereupon he responded with the famous words, If I've committed this sin, let my death not atone for any of my sins. But if I have not committed, then I want my death to atone for all the sins that I've had. And the witnesses, after hearing this declaration by the son of Shimon ben Shetach, admitted that they had testified falsely. They went to the court. The judge says, we, were, we, we lied. He's innocent. He didn't do anything. And, and uh, you know, we're only doing this to, uh, to avenge the death of, of, our, of our lady cousins who were killed by Shimon ben Shetach. But the court was unable to overturn the verdict because that's what the law says. And the death sentence was indeed carried out. And Shimon ben Shetach's son was indeed executed. So Shimon ben Shetach had an, an amazing opportunity here to save his son, but it was too late. The verdict was carried out. Why didn't he save his son? He didn't save his son because he had to preserve the authority of the court. The authority of the court is what keeps the, the whole Jewish system moving. It's the law. It's the halakha. And, and once the court decrees that decision, although they were lying and they would have probably been punished too, but nevertheless, this is what has to happen. It's a very, very sad story here. But if anything that we can take out of this is the idea of preserving the law. For us, non-lawyers or non-judges, the law is very simple. It's preserving the halakha. What's written in our code of law, that of the Shulchan Aruch and the Rambam and Maimonides, this is what we have to follow. The halakha is what bridges all the Jewish people together. No matter where you're from, you may have a whole bunch of different customs of what you do on holidays or non-holidays or during times of happiness or weddings or even times of mourning, God forbid. But nevertheless, the halakha is what connects each and every one of us. We all have one shulchan aruch. Yes, some people may hold this is allowed and that's not allowed, but that's fine. As long as you keep together and you preserve that. The moment someone begins to threaten the authenticity of the halakha, the authenticity of the judicial system and the way that the Chachamim enacted these laws, at that moment you must protest and you must do whatever you can to inform those people you are wrong and I will not stand up for it. Nowhere, no how will anyone put up with such um, hypocrisy to say that you can do what you want that is negative halakha. It is something that cannot be allowed ever. One of the great examples that we have is the two-day Yom Tov in, in, in Chutz La'aret. How many times have we heard the question? But we have a Jewish calendar already. We, we know when Pesach is. Why is it that we in Canada and America have to celebrate two days of Pesach, two seders? We know. We know what day is Tetvav Nisan. So why is it? Why is it? Because we can't outdo the enactments of the Chachamim. Not until Mashiach comes. No matter what calendar, no matter how precise, no matter how amazing our, our, our astrologers are to know exactly when that full moon hits, it makes no difference. It makes no difference. The halakha is binding. It will always be binding. And anyone that wishes to say some, the naysayer against that or wishes to, contra or wishes to contradict the halakha, 
that person needs to be stopped in his tracks. He needs to be halted. He needs to be seized and protested. And this is one of the ideas that we see, we learn from Shimon ben Shetach. Even if it meant that his son was condemned to death, it was a kapara for something else. And even if it meant that I had to go and yell at my friend, Yehuda ben Tibai, who, who thought he, he was going against the Tzidukim. But no, but you did it wrong. You had no right to sentence that guy to death for what you did. Because that's not what the law states. So, when serving as a judge, don't start trying being as a lawyer. Maybe that's one way of thinking it. Ah, trying to find a way out. What is the law? You are the judge. You are the person who has to render the decision. What is the decision? Is it allowed or is it not allowed? We're not talking about stringencies. We're not talking about leniencies. We're talking about law. Is it allowed? Is it not allowed? Give the decision. And don't break those decisions. And that's why it's so important that a person needs to study the Allah because that's our way of life. The Mishnah continues. When the litigants stand before you, consider them both as guilty. This is a very, very difficult statement to understand. Here in America, you know, we understand that a person is innocent until proven guilty. So here the Mishnah seems to be implying the opposite. The opposite point of view. Both litigants are guilty. When they stand in front of you, consider them guilty until proven otherwise. Is that the way we should? Maybe we should uh, protest that. Let's call our, our local government and uh, our municipal courts and provincial courts or even federal courts and say, hey, you guys got it all wrong. The Mishnah tells us otherwise. Shimon ben Shetel says, you got to think of them guilty. What the Mishnah is saying is not actually to consider them guilty, but rather assume that the litigants, both litigants, are wrong. And there is a psychological basis for this. We should not suspect a person to be willfully and maliciously lying. However, when there is a personal interest at stake, such as a litigant in a trial, then that person is likely to have a perception that is distorted. He may know the facts of the case and what he would like them to be to go in his favor. But many, many times, and there's a lot of evidence, people tend to believe things are true and be ready to defend their position even though it's not true. So I read an amazing experiment that is brought down in the book of Rav Tversky on Perkei Avot, which we're using again this year. And he brings down uh, an experiment that took place in the 1950s uh, to see whether or not a person could actually testify under oath that something is true even though it is known to be false. In the 1950s, there was this hypnotist that uh, hypnotized a perfectly normal, healthy young man and told him that there was a communist conspiracy to infiltrate the major networks and to spread communist ideology to the American people through NBC, CBS, so on and so forth. And um, he woke up from his trance, and this young man right away went to the phone and called up NBC about the danger that was taking place at that moment. 
Who picks up the phone? One of the spokesmen for the NBC, who was part of the experiment. And he told him, listen, uh, you, I cannot consider this a serious uh, accusation unless you're able to, provi to provide me with some ed evidence. You're here, you're saying that the Russians are infiltrating us and the communist regime, you need to provide evidence. Again, he, under he knows this is all an experiment. The man then begins to tell him about all the meetings that he's had. And he gave dates and places and names of people who were at the meeting. And when he was pressed more, he gave the descriptions of the people who attended and what they were wearing and what they were eating and drinking. And when his testimony was challenged further, he became defensive. So you're calling me a liar. I'm saying truth. And it was all not true. He was removed from his uh, hypnotic uh, trance. And all of a sudden, he was unable to recall any of the names or any of the situation that was given to him. The entire conversation was filmed. And when he saw himself testifying about these details of the people at the meetings, he was totally bewildered. He couldn't believe it. The names and places of the people that he cited were completely unknown to him. So what does this show us? If a person has an idea which he believes to be true, he can actually manufacture evidence to support that notion, and he will be adamant in insisting that it's true. If Shimon asks Reuven for $1,000, which Reuven agreed to give to him, but never got around to give it to him, but Reuven, for whatever reason, is under the impression that he actually did lend him the money, and Shimon denies receiving it. I never received the money. It is very much possible that Reuven will present all kinds of evidence for the case. Why indeed he lent him $1,000? Because he believes he's telling the truth. Even though Reuven would never knowingly swear falsely, he will have no problem going to court and putting his hand on a Sefer Torah and saying, this is what happened. I lent him $1,000. So because the litigant is very much possible to distort the facts and believe his distortions are true, the Mishnah tells the judges to utilize a very high index of suspicion. Work on the assumption that both litigants are wrong. And in that way, the judges will have the ability to pull out the truth. Lastly, the Mishnah says, When they are dismissed from you, consider them both as innocent, provided that they accepted the judgment. Once the verdict has been delivered and the litigants have accepted the verdict, now you have to think of them as fine individuals, upright, straight people. This is something that's very important because it's very possible that the party who lost the case may have been exposed as a person who is dishonest, as a person who's a cheater or a liar, and that maybe he tried to enrich himself unjustly against the law, at the expense of the person across the room from him. And the Mishnah tells us not to think of the person that way, but rather give the person the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he really thought that what he was saying was the truth, like we spoke about earlier. Or maybe he had other rationalizations that, that made him justify his position the way that he did. The Gemara actually tells us that if a man enters a marriage contract, 
stipulating with his wife or his soon-to-be wife that the marriage should be binding, providing that I am a tzaddik. Behold, you are betrothed through me, providing that I'm a tzaddik. The Gemara says, even if he's a complete rasha, a complete wicked person, the marriage is considered binding. Why? Because he may have had one thought of teshuvah, of repentance, a brief moment of remorse can convert a person who is an absolute rasha to an absolute tzaddik. So too in the case of the Din Torah, a person that is in court, the litigants, a person may be so blinded by his desire for money that he actually believes that what he is claiming and contending is true. So once the verdict is delivered, he no longer stands to gain anything else from his rationalizations. He may recognize the truth. He may actually be remorseful for what happened, for be wrongly pressing the, uh, the money or for denying a, a claim or whatever the case is. The importance of the concept is that what's being mentioned in this Mishnah actually extends far beyond that of the courtroom. We always have to be ready to give a person the benefit of the doubt. Uh, let us think about ourselves, how many times we were in a similar position like that person. Don't be quick to judge that individual. You know, many times we were in a situation that we thought we were right and then we regretted our behavior or the way we acted in the, the, the situation or the circumstances. Just like we would wish others to judge us favorably and consider that we have done Teshuvah and that we have done better and we bettered ourselves, so too we have to accord the courtesy to them as well. And that's why, However, I want to end with the following. The syntax of the Mishnah doesn't seem to flow nicely. The last statement that we just learned makes a lot of sense. It says, when, when the judgment is given, consider them both as zakaim, as innocent. But the statement before that, which said, when they're first presenting themselves to you, before the judgment is rendered, it says, When their litigants are standing in front of you, you consider them like wicked people. If the syntax was to flow, then that word shouldn't have been reshaim. It should have been chayavim. It should have been guilty. After the court, the case is done, consider them innocent. Before the case has started, consider them guilty. Chayavim would have been the right word. Here we're calling them reshaim. Why is it that when the litigants are standing before the judge, the Mishnah, Shimon ben Shetach and Yudah ben Tabai choose this word, of Reshaim over that of Chayavim. Reshaim is a very, very strong use of word. And I think, and this is my own idea, I think because if two people are in the middle of a dispute and two people have something that is rubbing each other the wrong way, they're not getting along, whether it's a monetary issue, whether it's a land issue, whether it's a marriage issue, for whatever reason it is. And they present themselves to court. They present themselves to court means that they haven't done enough to settle this on their own. And the moment that they step into court, it almost automatically ruins and, and dissolves any chance for shalom. 
And what ends up happening is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants you to find compromise. He wants you to work it out on your own. The moment you step into the court and put your, your case in front of the judge, then you've ruined what HaKadosh Baruch Hu built this world on. That of Chesed and Shalom, Emet Mishpat Shalom, Shiftu B'Sha'arachem, is also found in Perkei Avot. The concept of peace in the home, amongst friends, amongst our acquaintances, amongst our community. When we fail to, co- to find and seek compromise, and we just jump to say, I'm taking you to court, this is what's going to happen, I'm going to prove you wrong, and you're going to see how I'm right and you're wrong, so on and so forth, and then it gets nasty, and then things spiral out of control. In God's eyes, you're like a Russia. In God's eyes, you could have probably done more to settle this on your own. There are always opportunities to go to court. There are sometimes it has to be done. I'm not saying it doesn't have to be done. But God wants you to work out your problems on your own, by yourselves. Because when situations arise and you're able to come to the solutions on your own, that's an unbelievable feeling. Because it rekindles friendships when you're able to solve things, when you're able to come to agreement on your own. No one wants to go to arbitration. No one wants to let a third party decide on what is right and what is wrong. Why can't you figure it out yourself? If you can't figure it out yourself that you were wrong and the other person was right, and same for the other side, whether he was right or wrong, if you can't figure it out yourself, then you got a lot to work on. And therefore you have the status of the Rasha. We're not even considering you right now a status of a, a person who's obligated to pay who is guilty. Guilty is a lesser level. You chose to step into my court and that means you're forcing me to decide for you and that's something that is not good. That's something that we do not preach. And hence, Shimon ben Shetach used the word, I believe, kirshaim, like rasha'im. You're not considered a rasha, but you're like a rasha. Obviously, a rasha, the actual rasha is a much, much worse type of person. But kirshaim, you have to think about why you're stepping into this court and why you're standing why you're standing in front of the judge because you failed to solve this on your own with, with your friend and with your acquaintance and that's what you should have done. Maybe that's done through study. Maybe that's done through more focus on halacha. And if everyone wants to, again, stick to the Jewish law and find and abide by the Jewish law, then things would be a lot easier. Maybe it's because of your lack of knowledge that you came to this point. Maybe that's why you have uh, you're being referred to as Kirshaim. Whatever it is, I'm not sure what Shimon ben Shetach's intent was or Yehuda ben Tabai's intent was. But the word or the usage of the word here is very, very strong. It's something to think about for those people who are out there that have disputes. We all have disputes with people. We tend to limit our disputes, of course, but there's always disputes that arise here and there. The key is figure it out on your own. Find whatever way to come to a compromise. Because that's how you increase peace. That's how Kakados Baruchu then continues The Torah scholars are people that find a way to always increase peace no matter what it takes. We think the Torah scholars never had disputes. You think they never got in arguments with people? They're always lovey-dovey. Their whole life was disputes of people in the Mishnah and the, and the Gemara. All they were doing were arguing with people. But they found a way to make it work. When you find a way to make it work, Nakados Baruch Hu looks at the world as a peaceful world because you are making it more of a peaceful world. Bezrat Hashem, as we uh, continue our day-to-day life and we 
stumble upon certain situations, we will do a better effort, A, to focus on the halakha, to focus on the law, defend the halakha at all costs, and at the same time come to compromise and finding compromise with the people who may, who may dispute us or may have um, a certain issue um, that, that arises. This is what we need to do in order to increase peace in this world. Bezat Hashem, through that will be zocheh to much, much greater blessing in the world. Join us next week as we will continue our study of Perkei Avot in the second chapter. Wishing everybody a wonderful night ahead.